Well, good morning and uh, welcome to church. I'd like to add my welcome uh, to Ethan's. My name is Rowan, one of the pastors here. And today we get the joy of looking at this passage and a little bit more that kind of follows on from it in chapter 27. Uh, lots of questions kind of can be raised around the issues that are raised in this part of the Bible today. So we're going to have a question time uh, straight after the sermon. You'll see a number up on the screen. Uh, you can just text to that throughout the service. Um, and hopefully as they all come in, they'll, we'll come through them and look at them at the very end. Why don't we pray and ask God to help us now uh, to understand His Word and to respond to it uh, as He wants us to. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that You are the God who speaks. That as we sit here today, coming from all different backgrounds and all different things going on in our life, that You speak into our world and You show us not necessarily what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. We ask that this morning through Your Spirit, You would focus us on your purposes for the world and help us to see what an amazing God you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask the question this morning, who do you trust? Who in the world around you do you trust? Uh, In 2013, 15 and 17, researchers asked New Zealand this exact question, which profession do you trust? The results are in... Uh, I'm glad you can see that, but we can't. What they said was, when they asked over 500 New Zealanders in a random poll on phone, uh, that the professions that were the most trusted in New Zealand are, number one, the fire service. We trust the fire service. Secondly, ambulances. Uh, So well done, paramedics and ambulance service. Doctors and nurses, and then the police, and then school teachers. That's kind of the next one down. You see there's kind of this grouping there of that top five. And then, sorry to say, there's a drop for members of parliament and lawyers and local council members and journalists at the very bottom. Who do you trust? New Zealand has kind of put forward their views on the positions of these people. Uh, And it's great to see that in that top section, you know, almost 80% of the country has some sort of confidence in those services. It's an important question, who do you trust? It's the question that's at the heart of every marriage. Who do you trust? Every friendship, who do you trust? Every decision in life, what information will you trust? We trust all the time, all sorts of different things. And the question is, who should we trust? Uh, Growing up, one of the things that I loved to do as a sport was this sport called canyoning. Now, canyoning is a little bit like abseiling, uh, but it's done in the middle of a canyon, not, not a cave, but kind of a, a river that goes through kind of tall walls and you're on either side and you wear a wetsuit and, and you go through. It's fantastic. Uh, I've loved it. And I got all the gear to be able to take people out. So I've got enough gear to take seven people canyoning with all the ropes and harnesses. It's, it's a fantastic sport. But one time uh, that we were out, I, I took a bunch of people from our old church and we're going out there. And it's really this, this sport where you have to trust the equipment. Because you're going off a 30-meter waterfall, hanging off a rope that everyone's trusting that I say, well, hold them. <laughs> and it requires a lot of trust. Anyway, this particular time, uh, this friend of mine had gone, uh, he was ready to go down. He'd been before, so he was going first. And he, he goes off the edge of this waterfall. There's water going over, comes off like this, goes down, disappears. And I hear, ah, Rowan? And it sounded really awkward. I'm like, what's wrong? He's like, uh, my harness just came undone. <laughs> and he's hanging 30 meters off a cliff off a waterfall. And I'm like, oh, what did you trust me for? (laughs) 
At that moment, I, I clipped myself onto another little bit of rope and go down. And what had happened was, uh, his, his belt had been in correctly, but it was a brand new harness that I hadn't used before and hadn't looped in the leg loops into the separate clip. And so he was safe hanging there on, on the waist belt, but his leg loops had come undone and we fixed them quickly. But there he was, hanging off this 30-metre waterfall by just his waist belt. Uh, the question is, who will you trust? Uh, do you want to come canyoning with me? I think it'll be great. We'll have a great time together. The bigger question for all of us as we come to this part of the scriptures is, can we trust God? Can we trust that God will do what he says he will do? Every single person in this room at some point will face death. Every single one of us has to make a decision about what comes next, whether we think there is a God or not question for us is, can we trust God? Really, can we trust Him with our lives? Can you trust Him to keep His promises? Or will He leave us high and dry, hanging from a cliff? In Genesis 12, we've been following the story of God and His promises to this family that started with Abraham. And God promised Abraham that I, I will save the world through your family. He just came to him and gave him that promise. I'll make you into a a great nation. You'll have so many descendants and I will bring blessing to the whole world through your family. I will save the world through your family. I'll teach your family my ways and I'll make your family into a new humanity, a new society of human beings who walk God's way. But Abraham had no children. (laughs) He's a hundred years old. And then Isaac was born. And we, we heard that story of how God brings blessing out of places that you would think it just could not come. God keeps his promises. His wife, Sarah, has a child named Isaac. Isaac meets Rebecca. They get married. We heard that last week. But as we open Genesis 25 this this morning, we see that as Isaac grew, there was a case of like father, like son. There is still no blessing, still no great nation. And the question for Isaac and Rebecca as we get to this section is, can they trust God? Can they trust him to fulfill his promises? At this point, Isaac's half-brother Ishmael, his older one that, um, that, that Abraham had had to the, the slave girl, he'd produced 12 sons to Isaac's zero. How are you feeling at that moment? I thought I was the promised one. I thought God had promised that through me, his blessings will come to the earth, that, that all nations will be blessed through me. He's got 12 sons and I've got none. And you can imagine that for Isaac at this moment and Rebecca, they're standing there. For 20 years, they've been trying to have children, no children yet. Why did God's blessings take so long? It might be you today. Why does it seem that the promises of God are so far off? Can I trust God? What we see is the reason that God's promises take so long is because God is teaching his people that the promise of his blessing cannot be achieved through human effort. God wants us to see that his blessing comes through him and through him only and not through our own efforts. We keep seeing this same thing over and over throughout the scriptures. It's the same for um, Isaac's daughter-in-law, Rachel and Leah. They have the same issues throughout scripture. We keep seeing it. The mother of Samson had issues having children. For Hannah, the mother of Samuel, it was the same thing. And we're waiting for the promises of God to come, but they seem to take so long. And then ultimately, the mother of Jesus, through whom a complete miracle happens, that makes it very clear that this promise is not of human breeding, 
of human will, but of God's. In every case, God is the one who brings his promises on his terms, in his power, and in a way that we can be certain it was him and not us. It was no fluke, it was no mere chance, but God and only God brings about his promises. Now, to Isaac's credit, he didn't follow in his father's footsteps all the way. He, 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 did, he didn't try and bring about a descendant outside of Rebekah through a surrogate wife, but he comes and prays before the true and living God. Look with me at verse 21 of chapter 25. Genesis 25, verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And the Lord heard his prayer and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. Now that little summary sentence sounds like it was all nice and fast, but it was 20 years before God finally said yes, before she finally conceived what we find out is that this child was not all that she imagined it to be. Look at verse 22. But the children inside her... What? Did you you say that little word? (laughs) But the children, plural. There's more than one. (laughs) Now, anytime anyone recognizes that, it's pretty scary from what I understand. I've been thankful on every one of our pregnancies. There's only been one every time. I don't know how many of you are twins. What's interestingly is um, that, that Ethan, who's leading the service, he's a twin. And do you know what his brother's name is? Jacob. His name's Ethan. They almost got it. Anyway, <laughs> you can work out which one he is later as, as you have that conversation. The children inside her struggled with each other. And she said what every mother says. <laughs> Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? What is going on? But there's more than meets the eye with this idea of struggle. It's not just that there are twins. Literally, the children smash themselves inside her. Like these two are going hammer and tongs at one another in the womb. Can you imagine that? Sitting at dinner and you're like some cartoon, bam, pow, pop, is going on inside. There's some massive battle. Her womb had become a battlefield. So she asked God, what is going on? What is going on? And the answer she receives was of cosmic significance. Cosmic significance. Here's where we see the freedom of God. The freedom of God. Verse 23. Two nations are in your womb. Two people will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. There is something going on here, the start of two nations, the continuing of God's blessings and and a battle that would last for a long time. And what we hear is that the older will serve the younger. Now, that's not normally how it is. Uh, Can I show of hands here? Uh, Who who is not the oldest? So who is kind of like the youngest or younger sibling? Not a strong show of hands. Okay, right? All right, there you go. Who is the oldest? Can I show of hands? There we go. Now, all the oldest in the room will just know and understand there is no point in being an older sibling if you can't tell them what to do. That's just the natural order of life. That's what kind of makes the older sibling. You get to boss them around because you've got to go through the hard yards of doing everything first and your parents being more strict and everyone's like, oh, you have a hard time. So they're grumpy and they keep telling everyone else, this is what you must do. You serve me. I'm older, you're younger. Do what I say. It's just nature. But what we see is that the order of nature is not necessarily the order of God's grace. 
God's gift, God's promise. The way we naturally view the world is not the way that God naturally wants to work. He's very, very different from us. We see again another repeated pattern throughout the Bible of the younger leading the older, or the older serving the younger. Cain's offering was rejected, while Abel, the younger, was accepted. It's not the way it was supposed to be. And then the blessing came through the line of Seth, not even the kind of the middle brother. The younger Isaac was chosen over Ishmael. Even though Ishmael was older, Isaac is chosen. Joseph, the second youngest, will be the one chosen over all his brothers and they would all bow down to him, we'll find out in a few weeks' time. And likewise, Judah, one of the other younger brothers of Jacob, sorry, sons of Jacob, will be chosen over his older brothers. There's a pattern here in the way God works that is different from the way that we naturally expect the world to go. The New Testament makes it painstakingly clear that God's ways are not our ways. The order of nature does not determine the order of God's grace. The order of nature does not determine the order of God's grace. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, 27. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. God works his plans and purposes different to the way we think, so we would recognize it's him who does his work. It is him who brings his promises. Tradition does not determine God's gracious plans. Convention does not determine God's gracious gifts. Neither does giftedness nor natural endowment. God's grace does not bow to social privilege or status. God works his plans, his ways for his purposes because he is God. So we would recognize he is God. He is so different to us. Paul in Romans 9 uses this very argument to show that natural descent, in other words, being Jew, having Jewish blood, does not ensure salvation. Look with me, Romans 9 verse 10. Not only that, but also Rebekah received a promise when she became pregnant by one man, our ancestor Isaac. I want to pause for a moment. One of the ways we understand the Old Testament is to see what the New Testament says about it. That's why we, we look in the New Testament where it quotes parts of the Old Testament and explains it to us. And so here we come to Romans 9 and actually see Paul showing what this whole episode that we're looking at in Genesis is about. You need to read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament if the New Testament is inspired from God. It is the inspired interpretation of the Old Testament. And so as we read this, we need to see what's going on through God's inspired eyes through Paul. But also, Rebekah received a promise. For when she became pregnant by one man, our ancestor Isaac... For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad so that God's purpose, according to election, might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but hated Esau. Now, as we read that and hear that, if you're anything like me, there's something that goes, oh, that's not right. It's just not the way that I am. It's not the way that we think. It's not the way that society works. And we'd be right to say that. Well, God is showing that he is in control. This idea that it is talked about here is what we call God's election. 
that God chooses who he will bring to himself. That he chooses, he has free choice over whom he wants to choose for his purposes, but that it's got nothing to do with us. Nothing to do with one being better or worse. Paul says God chose before these children were even out of the womb. They couldn't have done anything right or wrong at that point. They weren't even born yet. And God made his choice. Jacob would become the recipient of God's blessing, not because he was morally better, not because he'd done good works, but purely because that's what God wanted to do. That's what God was going to do to show his purposes in his way. We hear that last line that Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And we're kind of like, oh, there's something not right about that as well. I don't think God is saying here that he hates Esau in his own right. We see throughout the scriptures that God wants no man to perish. But what he's saying is in comparison with God's choice of Jacob, Esau's family was hated. Jacob was a family that would undeservingly get poured on with blessing after blessing, become the most important nation on earth, and through his family, the whole world will be blessed. Esau, compared to that, well, he's hated. He does not get what Jacob gets. Esau's family was was hated. In fact, Herod, the king that killed all the babies after Jesus' birth, was from the line of Esau. There's a a whole family line here that is against God in what happens. And some of that, we kind of come back to the point of going, well, this is part of God's choice. But we also see that Esau and his family are responsible for their actions. God did not choose Esau to be a blessing to the nations. But Esau, we will see, also chose to reject the true and living God. As we get to this section... We notice Paul doesn't apologize or explain the fact that God chooses. It's just one of those realities we need to sit with. God's love transcends human convention. He is different. His sovereign will does not bow down to the order of human expectations. Who he chooses is up to him and it's got nothing to do with us, whether we understand that or not. The reason we find it kind of a bit weird is because when we make choices, we choose a spouse based on how good they are. We choose them because they were better than all the others. That was what I was doing, right? In my view, that's as you come through, you choose them because you love them, because they're lovable, because they bring you love. But God chooses us not to do with anything to do with us. Nothing. It's not that anyone is better or worse. It's just his plan. Well, the boys are born. Esau comes out first. He's the oldest. And he comes out as some hairy, redneck, Bear Grylls type guy. Right? He loves his hunting. I was going to put a photo up of Bear Grylls eating like a a heart, but it was just too gross. But you can imagine it, right? Esau comes out. He's red and hairy. If he drove a car, it'd be a massive pickup ute, one of those really, really big ones that takes up more than the road. And be driving along being like, yeah. And that's kind of what he's like. He's, he's this guy that just lives it up. He's hairy. He's big. He's got deer on the back and a gun by his side. This is, this is Esau. And then as Esau is kind of coming out, we hear that Jacob, the younger, is grasping at his foot. He's not like his brother. He's not hairy. He's a smooth man. The kind of metro man. Very different. You know, as I was thinking through, he's kind of like, imagine you're kind of Bear grills, this big kind of guy, standing next to like Steve Jobs kind of slight kind of man who's a little bit frail and he's kind of all got his hands clean and a turtleneck on 
So Jacob and Esau together are these two so different, so different from one another. And tragically, we read in verse 27 in chapter 25 that Jacob and Rebekah choose sides in their children. Never, never a good thing to do. Isaac, he loves his mountain man. He loves his deer and game food. It excites him. But Rebecca, she loves her Jacob, her metro man. And then we hear of a shameful exchange. A shameful exchange. Esau comes in from the field. Have a look with me at verse 29 of chapter 25. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, you can see him. He's got his iPad there. Hearing from some other celebrity chef. Jacob's cooking a stew. Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff. I'm exhausted. Right? It's a mixture of Arnie and and there's a whole heap of things in there. (laughs) Jacob replies, like Steve Jobs kind of would, first sell me your birthright. (laughs) Wow. Right? Who says that? Look, says Esau. (laughs) I'm about to die. And you can imagine him, he's been cruising the woods, he's been taking out deer, he wants to eat, he must have it right here, right now. I'm about to die, what good is a birthright to me, you foolish metro man? You kind of see this kind of comparison with the two. Jacob says, swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, he drank, he got up and he went away. So Esau despised his birthright. Esau's you only live life once attitude caused him to do something phenomenally, phenomenally stupid. He exchanged the promise of God to bless the whole world through him, to be the nation that would experience God's blessing forever for a bowl of stew, probably lentil soup. (laughs) You're like, really? Who would do something so stupid? Who would exchange the promises of God for something so temporary in front of us as a bowl of food or momentary pleasure? Who would do that? I hope you feel a little prick of God there as we think through the way we exchange the promises of God for the things just in front of us. The damning light at the end of this episode is actually that it condemns Esau. He despised his birthright. Not, not because he's like, oh, my birthright, I gave it away. But he despised it in the view that he, he, he gave it up. He despised what was his. He had so little regard for the word of God. God's promise to him was intangible, unreal. In contrast to Jacob, he saw what was on offer. He saw what this thing could be. He believed the promise and cherished it with all his heart, so he took it. Where are you tempted to disregard the Word of God? Where is it for you? We're all tempted to do it. To exchange things of eternal value for things of just immediate pleasure. What is going around your head at night as you lie in bed? The things that pull us away from the promises and plans of God. So many of us get bamboozled by the here and now, don't we? Just by the things of the next couple of weeks, the next couple of years, that we miss the reality that has been offered to us all eternity. It doesn't factor. What could be so great that you would exchange God's eternal blessings for it? What else is there? 
Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, says this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted and unfading, kept in heaven for you. If you trust Jesus, that is our future. That is what we have to look forward to. That is what has been secured by His death and resurrection. A living hope. An inheritance that is imperishable, that will not perish, that is uncorruptible and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That is what we have been promised. Yet my eyes so regularly drift and lower themselves to the horizon of what is straight in front of me. Jacob, he's really not that different from Esau. While he is cool and calm, he, he, he proves to be a, a calculating, cheating opportunist. He seeks his own self-serving outcomes, grasping, scheming, exploiting his own family. While we hassle Jacob for being a meathead, sorry, Esau for being a meathead. Oh, people bet me that I'd do this today. Anyway, there we go. I did it once. People hassle um, Esau that he's a meathead. But Jacob is just serving his own desires, isn't he? Jacob's issue was that he didn't believe the promises of God would be his without his own self-manipulation. He had to get in there and get his dirty fingers amongst it. He couldn't trust that God would bring about his promises. He had to achieve them on his own without God. And when you stand back and you view these two brothers side by side, you stand back and go, it's a wonder God could love either of them. They're both shockers. You're like, what are they doing? Nevertheless, when they do stand side by side, Jacob is seen as a man of faith, despite despite his mistrust of God. But he's seen as a man of faith because of nothing to do with him. He's seen as a man of faith because of the promise of God. We'll come back to that in a moment. So what would happen to these two children and the promise? What will happen? We're told the start, we're told this birthright selling. What will happen in the end? Well, we fast forward to chapter 27 and we're faced with a very different picture of Isaac, the father. The creature comforts for Isaac have become the center of his life. The man who who kind of trusted God, who was there and saw God save him at that moment on that mountain, has now kind of drifted in his age. And it's represented in his love for food. Have a look at 25 verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman. But Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Aging had left Isaac visually impaired. He was dependent on his family. And what we notice is he had also come to oppose the revealed will of God regarding Jacob and Esau. He was actually part of another shameful exchange. This is shameful exchange number two. He was there when God told Rebecca that the older will serve the younger. We've heard that. He knew what would happen. He knew what God's plans were, but he didn't care. He was hell-bent on loving his son who brought him game that fed his belly that made him comfortable. Verse um, 2 of chapter 27. Isaac said, look, I'm old and I do not know the day of my death. Take your hunting gear, your quiver and bow. Go out in the field to hunt some game for me then... Make me a delicious meal that I love 
and bring it to me to eat so that I can bless you before I die. So that I can bless you before I die. This is it. This is the promise. Is this, is this kind of something more like a, a will and testament than just a blessing? We're like, what's wrong? It's just a blessing. You know, words come off our mouth so easily. Bless you. You know, that's great. No, this is more like, no, no, I will pass the inheritance to you. I will sign the will and testament and I will leave it signed and that is it. It's done. We don't quite get the sense of it here, but Isaac's desire here is with all his heart to bless Esau. It's not just that he loves the meal. He wants to bless Esau. He loves his son. His passion for Esau has driven him to reject the true and living God. If you have children, or one day you will have children, will your passion for your children drive you to put God second and them first? That's exactly what happens here. There are no heroes in this story. None. Only sinners. And Isaac was chief of them all. Rebecca's in the background. She hears the whole plot of what's about to happen, that the birthright, is, that the blessing's about to be given to, to Esau. And so she hatches a plan to deceive Isaac and bless Jacob. Again, this is not a model of marriage to follow. Do not follow this and be like, oh, this is what happened in the Bible. This is great. We should look to doing this. It's absurd. The two against one another, just trying to get their own for their own. So she then goes to, to Jacob, the skinny, kind of smooth one Metro Man, Steve Jobs character, there he is. And she goes and explains the plot that she has to him. And it really is absurd. Your brother looks like a hairy goat. Like he's crazy. There's hair coming off him everywhere. And you're this skinny, smooth guy. Why don't we try and trick your dad? He's a bit old. He's losing his vision. Why don't we try and trick him and you can get the blessing? So they strap goat skin to him. Like just see the comic kind of craziness, absurdity of this. Let's get a goat skin and just tie it to your arms and hands and then some on the back of your neck so that when your dad touches you, he's like, yep, this is a hairy guy. I mean, it's not really a, an encouragement to Esau, is it? Oh, we can trick you like, by being like a goat. I don't know, maybe it is. You can imagine what they do. They, they kind of get whatever kind of brute cologne they can find. They kind of spray on him so he smells like a goat as well. But there's a deeper absurdity going on here. The mother and the son believe that God won't be able to accomplish his own purposes without their help. They enter into this situation going, we need to help God do this. We need to bring about it in our way. They believe what they were doing was helping God along, helping his revealed will. And they kind of adjust, think they're justified because, well, God said this would happen. We're just helping it get there in the way that it needs to happen because it's obvious God's not going to step in in any other way. They believe their unrighteous acts were appropriate and good as long as they aided the work of God. And there's something in that for us as well, isn't there? And so often I find myself tempted to cut corners, move faster, because, well, it's God's will in the end. How often do you find yourself speeding to get to a meeting because God says that your yes be yes and your no be no? I can't be late to the meeting. And so I must be there on time. And so because I'm keeping your yes be yes and your no be no, it's okay for me to speed. If the police pull me over, I'll just say I'm a pastor. I've got to get to a meeting. <laughs> no. How often are we a little less generous sometimes in other areas, perhaps less generous to the tax man? 
so that we can give more to church. Well, I want to save more money so I can give more to the kingdom. And so we, we, we come up with these ways where we cut corners and do things that aren't right and we justify it with, well, we, we, we're doing God's purposes. I don't know what it will be for you, but God does and you do. Where are you tempted to cut corners of righteousness, of right living, of taking God at his word and living his way so that you might bring about the purposes and plans of God? Let me read to you one commentator who says this. Righteousness can never be laid aside, even if our object is yet more righteousness. In personal life, in home, in church life, in endeavors to win men for Christ, in missionary enterprise, in social improvement, and in everything connected with the welfare of humanity, we must insist upon absolute righteousness, absolute truth in our methods, or else we shall bring discredit on the cause of our Master and Lord. But that is not what Jacob does. Verse 18, chapter 27. When he came to his father, he said, My father, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob replied to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Sit up and eat some of my game so you may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how did you ever find it so quickly, my son? He replied, because the Lord your God worked it out for me. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come a little closer so I can touch you, my son. Are you really my son Esau or not? So Jacob came closer to his father Isaac. When he touched him, he said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he blessed him. Jacob lies three times. Blatant, straight out lies. Isaac's still not totally sure. Look at verse 25, 27, 25. Then he said, serve me and let me eat some of my son's game so that I can bless you. Jacob brought it to him and he ate. He brought him the wine and, and he drank. And his father Isaac said to him, please come closer and kiss me. He's still not convinced. So he came closer and kissed him. When Isaac smelled his clothes, he blessed him and said, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. Now, one thing to note, there's a fantastic application for everyone here. Deodorant matters. (laughs) Seriously, smells matter. Sometimes you can repulse people with how you smell. It's a great personal hygiene tip for us from the Bible. Here, deception happened because he stunk like a goat. (laughs) Remember that for those that don't wear deodorant. But the bigger picture is the deception that comes at tricking his dad and trying to get his his own way. We then hear the blessing that comes, verse 29, and you hear the echoes of what this was. This is no little blessing Many people, sorry, may people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down to you. Those who curse you will be cursed and those who bless you will be blessed. This is the promise God gave to Abraham. This is it. He has become, Jacob has become the one through whom the whole earth will be saved. No sooner as those words come out of his mouth, Esau arrives back from the hunt. And nothing could have prepared Isaac for the shock he's about to encounter. Look at verse 32. 
But his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I'm Esau, your firstborn son. Isaac began to tremble uncontrollably. Who was it then, he said, who hunted the game and brought it to me? I ate it before you came in and I blessed him. Indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he cried out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me too, my father, bless me too. But he replied, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. What you see here is a wonderful picture of what God does as Isaac trembles. Before Isaac can experience the great grace of the blessing passing through his family, he has to be brought to his knees where God brings him trembling to say, not your plans, but mine. You might have tried to work against me, but I'll bring about my purposes my way. Through the responsibility of others, yes, they're responsible for the deception that happened, but Isaac is brought to his knees. Before God's grace comes, there needs to be a great earthquake that brings us to our knees that we might recognize we are not in control, but he is. And that's exactly what happens here. Isaac's idol came crashing down. The arrogance and pride by which his plan had tried to thwart the plans of God toppled to the ground in a trembling mess. And thank God for that. Thank God that he brought Isaac to his senses. You can't fight God's plans and purposes and win. You can't. You can't fight God's plans and purposes and win. Isaac's conclusion, verse 33, I blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. He's given up. He's defeated. God has won. He's accepted that Jacob is the child of the blessing. Esau cries out. But the writer of Hebrews, reflecting on this passage, makes clear that the ultimate culpability for Esau losing his position actually remains with Esau himself. He is still responsible. Look at verse 16 of Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 16. Make sure there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau, who sold his birthright in exchange for one meal. For you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance, though he sought it with tears. It's his own fault. Like it's always our fault when we turn against the will of God. This story is real life. Everyone in the story is a sinner. No one has it together. No one looks good, not Isaac, not Rebecca, not Esau, not Jacob. They all fall down. The only one who stands, as you stand back and look at this story with any credibility and faithfulness and dependability, is the God who brings about his purposes in his ways, in his timing. Every time, always. The question of who can we trust is answered with a resounding no one when it comes to humanity. There is no one in the world that we can trust. We can't even trust ourselves to do what we ought to do. But we can trust the God who chooses us. And that's where we see that God's choice is for our good. He is worthy of our trust. He is faithful. He is the one whose choices are always right. He is the one who chooses us because we could not choose him. Now, I know we've talked about this. The idea of God choosing us is just so kind of weird. More pointedly, the idea that God's choice to accept... So the idea that the choice to accept God's blessing does not ultimately reside with us, that it's God's choice, is ultimately offensive. 
It's kind of scandalous. We stand here and we go, how is this the case? I'm used to me being in control. This is the way the world is. This is just nature. But it's not God's way. Think about it like this. If, If you and I were left to ourselves to choose God, scriptures tell us we're spiritually dead. A dead person doesn't talk. A dead person can't make choices. We're dead. No matter how good we think we are, unaided by God, we continually choose to run away from him and his saving promises. Like everyone in this story and everyone in this room. None of us runs to God of our own will. We always run away from him. While God had each of us in mind before the creation of the world, the thing we need to realize and the thing that's most scandalous and the thing we don't like hearing is, that God has always been about himself first, which is for our good. The reason we're scandalized by God's choice, not our own, is because we don't like recognizing that he is king and we aren't. The world does not exist first and foremost for you and me. The reason God made the world was not just for our good, but for his glory. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, The skies proclaim the work of his hands. The world around us does not just exist for us. It exists to say, man, God, you are good. You are amazing. Listen to the way that God speaks in Isaiah 48. For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to cut you off. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. It couldn't be more clear than that. I will not yield my glory to another. The whole reason God worked through this broken family called Israel. The whole reason God works in you, in me, is so that everyone might stand back and go, wow, you did that through them? So that God might be glorified. The world might say he is in control and he is good and he is faithful. And he will not let anyone's choices get in the way of his plans. He's not bound by our limited knowledge. He's not bound by our conventions, our ideals. He is not tame. He will not submit to our idolatrous notions of what we think is good and right. He is in control of everything. And thank God for that. Imagine the mess we would be in if we just totally abandoned his way. Imagine what life would be like if God wasn't in control. If salvation was my choice that I had to choose totally. It would mean that eternity would never be secure. For it would lie in my hands. In my choice. 